We are in the most remarkable of times, terrifying and surreal. My wife and I are sheltering in place and doing well, adjusting to the chronic anxiety we live with as we fall into the dreaded category called older Americans with underlying conditions. We are learning that hope is medicine for us, reducing anxiety and fueling our belief that we will all get through this. My wife is in real estate and things are getting starting to move again, but Eileen finds her real hope in the garden. There's nothing like a garden in the spring to remind us of beauty and rebirth. And nurturing beautiful living things is actually my wife's superpower. Me, I find hope in the work of the nonprofit leaders I'm privileged to serve. The juxtaposition of your immense struggles, read funding, resources, and the exponential need for your work is like nothing I've ever seen. And I could tell stories for days of small and mighty nonprofits who are delivering their mission promise against all odds with resilience, creativity, collaboration, and sheer grit. That said, I'm not naive. Nonprofit leaders are struggling, many of them facing crises that are existential. Will they make it? Government subsidies are helping for sure, but I wanted to know what funders, especially foundations, are thinking. I'm imagining program officers inundated with requests for emergency grants, and this crisis is so very unique. I mean, like you can't go on site to see the devastation of a hurricane and quantify the needs for a rebuild. We have no idea where this is all going. All we know is that heroic leaders like you need all kinds of help. Today, we talk with the ED of the Walton Family Foundation. In 2018, this foundation awarded nearly $600 million in grants with a focus on the environment, K-12 education, and the place the Waltons call home, Northwest Arkansas. The foundation invests around the world on farms and in backyards and in the kids who are our future. All of you superheroes with tattered capes, this conversation is for you. Greetings, and welcome to my podcast, Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary. In my work, I offer counsel and advice to CEOs and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a keynote speaker, an author of a best-selling book with a very novel name, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, and I'm a columnist for the Chronicle of Philanthropy. I'm also the co-founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, an online membership site where we help small nonprofits thrive. But most of all, I consider myself a compassionate truth teller and a champion for board and staff leaders. In my podcast, I dig deep into the issues faced by nonprofit leaders. You can always count on getting my personal point of view, and you can count on experts who will share their expertise in fields ranging from fundraising to leadership transitions, to team building, to board management, to organizational strategy, to self-care. The list goes on. So welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Let's get started. Carol M. Stern is the executive director of the Walton Family Foundation. Previously, she was the president and CEO of UNICEF USA for 12 years. A dynamic change maker, Carol has dedicated her career to helping others through education, compassion, advocacy, and rolling up her sleeves. Carol has spearheaded UNICEF USA's emergency relief efforts for kids affected by disasters, including earthquakes, epidemics, and the ongoing global refugee and migrant crises. Carol has been invited to present at the White House inaugural summit on the United States of Women and holds many honors, such as being named one of the 25 women changing the world in 2017, 25 moms we love, 
I hope your children voted, and 10 Women to Watch. She serves on the board of directors for the Container Store, is a member of the advisory board of Chime for Change, and a trustee of the world's Big Sleep Out. Prior to joining UNICEF USA, Carol was an executive at the Anti-Defamation League, the founding director of its World of Difference Institute, and the dean of students at Polytechnic University. Carol is an activist, author, executive, public speaker, mother of three, grandmother of two. Carol, thanks in advance for the conversation and all your work and insights. Thanks, Joan. It's great to be here. Fun to see you and hear you again. Um, as here we are socially distant where podcasts can actually, uh, where actually work just fine. So <laughs> um, I happen to know, Carol and I actually go way back, back to the Anti-Defamation League when I was at the Gay and Lesbian, essentially the Gay and Lesbian Anti-Defamation League. Defamation League, League right? right. And so um, we worked together back then and have stayed in touch. Um, and I happen to know that this is a pretty new and sweet gig for you. After 12 years of leading UNICEF USA, you made this big switch in December from a nonprofit CEO role to a grant maker and not just a grant maker right? The Walton Family Foundation is a large grant maker with annual giving of more than $500 million, putting it in the ranks of other well-known private foundations like Ford, Robert Wood Johnson, MacArthur. So tell us about the foundation and tell us what it's like to shift from being the CEO to a funder. Big changes. Um, You know, I'll start with with the foundation itself. You know, I took this job because when I sorted out what did I want to do next, at the top of my list was, I don't know what job title I want, but it has to have impact. And so when I then looked at the landscape of opportunities, this one said impact all over it. Yeah. But obviously you take a job and you hope you find what you thought you would when you get there. This is a family that is all about impact. You know, as you said, the foundation focuses in three areas, the environment, the home region, which includes not only Northwest Arkansas, but the Delta as well, Ah. and then K through 12, you know, K through 12 education. And um, it's been a privilege the past, you know, I guess it's 13 weeks now, maybe, (laughs) that I've been on the job (laughs) to be working with this amazingly bright, passionate, and committed family At the same time, I got to spend all of five weeks in my office before COVID hit. So I've been out of the office more than I've been in the office. So it's been the strangest job transition I've ever done. Uh, I think the strangest fill in the blank anyone has ever done. We can just all use that one sentence, right? Uh, Absolutely. You know, you try and get to know 21 family members, several hundred staff through Zoom. And somehow you're making it work, aren't you? I'm I'm trying. I'm trying. Yeah. I have an amazing team. I think that's been the other constant from one job to the other. You know, UNICEF, I had an amazing team. And at the foundation, I really, they are so smart and, and so passionate and committed to what they do that I am thoroughly enjoying just getting to work with them. You know, that, that part's been great. But it is different. It's eye-opening to sit on the other side of the desk. It is. I, I, I'm i sure that that's true. So tell me how many, sort of the $600 million that you gave away, and I was poking around your annual report, um, how many unique grantees does that represent? And can you help us understand sort of the sizes and shapes they come in? 
Sure. You know, that's several thousand grantees. I mean, I think that was one of the challenges of COVID. People say, well, how did it impact your grantees? And I say, well, I'm still going through that. But, um, (laughs) you know, it was really, I think in total, we're close to 3,000 grantees. So they really do range in size from, you know, that $50,000, $30,000 grant to that several hundred million dollar grant. And that that represents organizations with very, very small budgets and organizations with significant budgets? Yes, all over the board. Um, <clears throat> so um, so let's, I mean, so, okay, so it's been 13 weeks, um, but I happen to know you and I happen to know that you're a very quick study. So tell me what you're learning about the nonprofit sector during this unprecedented crisis. What are you, what are you learning? What's surprising you? What are you worried about? Uh, let's, let's chat about that a bit because I have some points of view on that too. Sure. So I think the first thing that I learned is how many friends I have. Um, it was <laughs> amazing when I got announced on LinkedIn that I had taken the job. It was the funniest thing I've ever watched because I happened to have had LinkedIn up on my screen when the public announcement went out. And within two hours, I had over 700 friend requests <laughs> from one announcement. Oh. I mean, anyone who ever knew me anywhere in the nonprofit world, anyone I'd, I think people I went to kindergarten with, anyone who was looking for a grant saw I, I took this job and I suddenly heard from them. So that was my first learning. But Learning was, um, right, is that becoming a significant funder, it makes you um, very popular. Very popular in very different ways. Yes, exactly. But with some sincerity, I I learned that there are so many good causes out there. And there are so many amazing people who give their time, their energy, their wallets to the passion of what they believe in. That it's very difficult when you're looking at grants to make those decisions. A lot Mm -hmm. harder than I thought it was. Um, So that's one. But in the wake of COVID... Uh, you know, the first thing I did, I was brand new as a foundation director. I looked for, you know, a framework, you know, where's the book? <laughs> how do I, how do I approach this now? And I couldn't find one. There right. just wasn't a framework. And I was really excited because Bridgespan, a team from Bridgespan, Sonali reached out to me and she asked, did I want to work with them since I've had, you know, over 40 years of responding to crisis on helping to develop a framework that funders could use to think about as they make their funding decisions in the wake of COVID. And it was just a phenomenal experience for me because I was with some big thinkers and they posed questions and forced me, I think, to come to some realities about the work I'm doing now that it might have taken me a lot longer to come to. It was really interesting. So uh, give me an example. You know, we really tried to work, you know, my grant officers with their grantees in having those conversations and in helping to see what kinds of support could we provide our grantees to solve that problem. And we did. We, we had some legal advisors. We had some strategic advisors. We tried to make resources available to our grantees. I think a second thing was to say it's a, not, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You're right. And so you don't have to deplete all of your response funds this week because this is going to be a long and prolonged problem. Right. So I think those were the two immediate. And then through the Bridgespan work, I think the advice that I ended up participating in being part of was support existing grantees first, which is what we did. Yeah. We went to our 3,000 grantees first because you know them, you trust them, you've invested in them and see what they need. The second was work through expert organizations. 
And I, hmm. and I say tell that me what you, yeah, Tell me my, what you mean by that. I want to hear more about yeah, that. That comes out of my UNICEF experience and, uh-huh. and probably was best exemplified in Haiti after the earthquake. Mm-hmm. Where we were receiving winter coats from really well-intentioned people for an island that will never wear a winter coat. Where people who had never done food distribution loaded up a private plane and brought food down and stood on a corner and said, I've got food, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and caused a riot. Yeah. Um, or were delivering food every week, but then they couldn't do it anymore. And now these people had no place else to turn. Right. That there are organizations that do this work that have a system in place or will call upon an organization that has a better system, but that know how to do it. And in the wake of a crisis, you know, kind of response and recovery is best left to the people who do response and recovery mm-hmm. and all, and or or who have an asset to that process. So you may be a youth group that's never done response and recovery, but you know where all the kids who are who don't get hot lunch at home. Right. So we're a hot meal at home. So maybe I'm a hot meal provider and we come together and we do a hot meal plan. But you don't turn to the kids who know where those other kids are and say, now figure out how to cook those meals because yes. they're not going to be able to do it at scale and they're not going to be able to do it. Um, I think you're actually raising a really interesting point and, and I and I believe there isn't a when this is over. There is, I've, mm-hmm. I've sort of described it as sort of when we get to the other side. Like I can't even think about it any other way. But I do think that there's kind of these shifts that nonprofits are going to have to make. And I've sort of been thinking about it as the old way and the new way. And, um, and it is, it has long been clear to me that collaboration and working together is something the nonprofit sector doesn't do all that well. Um, that, you know, if I'm in a community and I think that there's a, that, that, that there's a limited size to the funding pie, I might just be a little bit more insular and a little bit more competitive. And I think the new way we have to actually reach out and be looking at those kinds of synergies that, that, um, play to the best and highest use of each. And we, um, we avoid doing that at our own peril. Yeah. And again, I would like and, you know, kind of harken back to UNICEF days, but in the wake of the Puerto Rico response, we had not worked in Puerto Rico. So there weren't UNICEF staff on the ground. Uh-huh. And we had to figure out, could we help? Did we have an expertise? Because I really hold true to you stay with what you know how to do. Mm-hmm. So what did UNICEF know how to do? UNICEF USA, we were really good fundraisers. We were a trusted source of support because people knew we held to a high standard of those we would fund with the dollars that we raised. Yep. We had access to United Nations Intel that would let us know what was really needed. And we knew how to deliver that because we'd done it before. Okay. But we didn't have staff on the ground to do it. And so Governor Cuomo had recently come back from Puerto Rico and I reached out to him to say, what did you learn? Because I also, a third last thing I stick by is that you want to enable local responses. You know, you don't want to spend your dollars getting it from here to there. You want to see if you can find it there first. And so I asked him, what did we need? And he said that, um, you know, he, he had already cleared several things that were going to make a difference. Okay. He had already gotten 
um, storage space at an airport. He had already gone down there and asked them what they needed. He had a list. He had already started to identify and had the attorney general vetting local organizations on the ground to be recipients of dollars. Right. Like all of that had happened, but he hadn't figured out how to collect the things or how to get them there. Well, I had access to UPS. UPS was a partner of UNICEF. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to the CEO of UPS, Jim Barber at the time. He flew in the next day. Jim, UPS, Andrew Cuomo, the governor and the governor's team, and Carol and UNICEF USA formed a partnership. And we each brought to the table what we did best. And we learned that UPS, not only greatest logistics people, you know, out there, but They also had 500 drivers on the ground with 500 trucks that had fuel in Puerto Rico. So we got the stuff. Cuomo helped get the stuff. Together, we vetted organizations. UPS got the stuff down there, and their drivers literally drove their trucks with chainsaws because they were going to roads, and they would take out the chainsaw and cut up the tree that was across the road, and then they would keep going. And they were amongst the first people to get resources that were needed out to the most remote areas. I couldn't have done that. Cuomo couldn't have done that. They couldn't have done that if we didn't work together. Yep. Uh, Yep. Absolutely. I see that. Um, So as you're having these um, strategy conversations at the Walton Family Foundation, um, I, I can't imagine that you aren't just being inundated, haven't been inundated with emergency requests. So the ones that are coming over the transom. Um, and I, and how is the Walton Family Foundation thinking about the sort of the bigger play? Because there are a lot of components to this. There's, as you said, there's bailout, there's recovery. There's something that I care a ton about, given what I do for a living, which is leadership development and capacity building, right? You can hand, you can hand a small organization a check. Um, but you're right. If they didn't have a cash reserve or they fought, you know, they, the, 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 so other kind of things going on in their organization that demand a certain kind of leadership, like money isn't the only answer. So I just sort of wonder, how are you as a foundation thinking about What's the play in terms of supporting the sector as best you can, given that there's, you know, we've got bailout, recovery, capacity building, leadership development, all those different components. How are you all thinking about that? So my, my short answer would be D, all of the above. But um, I, I think we are trying to learn as we go. And that's one of the things I like best about where I'm working right now is they are learners. And so, you know, we actually have an entire department dedicated to, you know, strategy, learning, and evaluation. And yeah. so one of the really earliest first cries was, let's step-by-step step make sure we're documenting what we're learning as we go. That was one piece. Mm-hmm. I think a second thing we're thinking about is recognizing one size does not fit all. It doesn't matter if you're a large or a small organization. You know, a large organization may have a larger endowment, but if you're dependent on ticket sales to your performances, you're a theater and you can no longer fill that theater. And the reality is even when this is over until people feel safe, you're not going to fill that theater. You got to rethink your model. And you may be a small troop of, you know, performers that we find that has no endowment, but still has the ability to go do what you do in some other way. That's different than carrying the cost of the big arena. Yeah. So 
you know, there's a little bit of everything. And I've seen such amazing innovation from both the large and the small. The second was to think about ourselves as a convener. How can we use the Mm -hmm. network we have both within the philanthropy landscape? So how do we reach out to our partners, learn from them, have them learn from us, other funders, other nonprofits? But then also, how do we bring all of our grantees together? We've been doing webinars that bring grantees together to answer common questions, but then to allow them to share best practices simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And then lastly has been, how does this impact how we look at tomorrow? So I think what COVID has done is it has shown us, it has an, you know, uncovered inequities we did not know existed. Yeah. But it has brought them into the spotlight. And so I'm trying hard, you know, maybe I'm such a Pollyanna, you know me for a lot of years, but to say, what is the silver lining to this crisis? And the silver lining is that spotlight and that opportunity. And out of crisis, we have seen so, you know, penicillin came out of World War II. I mean, crisis leads to innovation. And so I'm trying very hard to to push our team towards that innovation spot. Yeah, I mean, we see this a lot. So, you know, I, you know, I have a, a posse of board and staff leaders of small nonprofits in my um digital membership site, the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. And, you know, it's time to reframe the question of, I have to postpone my gala to, (laughs) were you overly dependent on the revenue associated with that gala to begin with? And what, as, as I like Michael Hyatt's framing about this, what does this make possible for you? And, um, you know, and I've just seen, remarkable things. I've seen um, nonprofit leaders of senior centers use uh, college and high school students to do technical tra- <laughs> technical training of seniors to get them to use Zoom so they can participate in some of the adult ed programs, right? And you think to yourself, that just sounds like a Saturday night live routine, right? And instead, it's actually really happening. And what is it making possible? It's making possible for people People that are homebound to participate in programs going forward that they never could before because they know how to get on Zoom, right? So it's, it's um, in many ways, it's very energizing to see that the folks who are, you know, as I like to say it, the, the people who are drawn like you to become a nonprofit leader are problem solvers. That's why you decided to raise your hand and say, I want to fix this. Right. right. And so, you know, the people that you grant money to have the exact attributes and DNA to get through this. Absolutely, they do. You know, I mean, most nonprofits start as very small, scrappy things and they have to go out and sell themselves and convince people. I mean, these are great salespeople. These are great fund fundraisers. These are great performers and artists. These are these are amazingly creative people. Yep, absolutely. So we're actually talking about uh, foundations and COVID-19 and innovation and support. And we're doing that with Carol Stern, who is the executive director of the Walton Family Foundation. Um, She was previously the president and CEO of UNICEF USA for 12 years. And this is a person who has dedicated her life to activism and uh, standing up for uh, for what's right and just, leveling the playing field, and is an author, executive public speaker. Um, 
let's talk a little bit about the um, the areas of focus of the Walton Foundation. And I, I actually laughed. Um, I have a couple of clients that are independent schools. And I also know I have a number of listeners who are in the education space. I saw this quote in your annual report and I thought to myself, oh my God, it could not be more appropriate. Was a quote, we want to give teachers a way to think and reimagine new ways to develop, to deliver current curriculum and content. And I just <laughs> thought, oh, <laughs> well, our word, you just a little bit ahead of the curve. Rethink, right? <laughs> right? Rethinking <laughs> and imagining. I'm, I'd love to hear what you're seeing in the K through 12 space and what the foundation sees as leverage points in funding in this particular sector, um, you know, through the lens of everything has changed forever in education. So I think the first reality that hit us in the K-12 space was that one in five children is not in school. Right. That they either don't have the hardware or the bandwidth or for whatever reason, access to the online learning that's being offered. And that that overwhelmingly can be divided, obviously, along economic lines and geographic lines. But that when you look at education in this country as a right, not a privilege, that one in five children in America today is being denied that right. And I think we need to contextualize that. So I think that's our our first challenge. One in five. That's the way I I need the people that are on their elliptical machines right now to listen to that. One in five, 20%. Of kids, are we talking K through 12? K through 12. 20% of K through 12 age kids in America do not have access to education. Right. And that's going to be our problem when they're not educated. We should make it our problem now. So that's kind of part one. But part two, I think that, that there was some naivete on some parts that, well, we could just translate school to an online experience. And... We are trying very hard now to learn what have we learned from that experience? Where are their exemplary curricula? What about the fact that parents needed to learn how to support their kids who are learning online? Indeed. What about the fact that we needed things like the UNICEF Kid Power Program that breaks up that sit in front of the computer and gets you up and moving while your kid is online? I have seen teachers, I mean, one of my favorites is an art teacher who is having your kids do projects with things you will find in any house, coffee grinds garbage, um, you know, things that economic lines don't make any difference on. You have seen teachers teach geometry through the, through the window, you know, I mean, I think we've seen such heartwarming stories of the, of the passion of why people go into education, you know, Mott Haven Academy in the South Bronx, it's a school in one of the poorest areas. And what they're doing with Chromebooks is not only getting the kids the education, but also getting kids tips on healthcare, letting them know where they can go to get a hot meal. Um, making them a bit, making counseling available because I think one of the things my experience with emergency response has taught me is kids are both resilient and less obvious in the impact of a crisis. So I, as an adult, know how to articulate to you, you know, I'm feeling really sad and I'm depressed today, or I see that my behavior is not myself today. Mm-hmm. Children don't always in the moment demonstrate that. They may demonstrate it long after. So we saw this after the storms in our own country. In Texas, every time it rains, those kids are hiding under their desks because they're fearful that it's a big storm again. So making sure that the psychosocial supports are there is equally important to the curricular content and and teachers create a safe haven for children. 
and and so it's their normalcy's been interrupted their methodology has to change i mean there's so much and so many parts to this and our strat 25 our next strategy is really paying attention to what did we learn and what are the innovations we want to test out now um i uh, it is it has been fascinating to um you know, as I said, I have a couple of clients who are in this space. And what I think is really interesting is how how energizing it is for an educator uh, to, to, to be forced to have a bit of a white space and say, no, you just can't do it that way anymore. Like, what would you do if you couldn't do it that way? <laughs> right? As opposed to how do we tweak it to make it better? There's there's such a difference in the mindset around that. And I've just seen several of my clients who are just, I, I've never seen them more ex, more exhausted or more excited about their jobs. Yeah, I think it's a both. You know, my, my daughter-in-law is a, an art teacher, actually, and I think she is finding the challenge exciting and the challenge daunting at the same time. Yeah. The um the other thing um, that I I see a lot in your in the materials of the Walton uh, Foundation is the issue of farming. You talk a lot about farming, and I, that may be around this kind of the vertical you have that you call home. And I, 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 so, so let me let me ask: is, is that where farming fits? Now, farming really comes, or is in that in our environment? Environment, yeah, because our our primary focus is on water on ensuring access to good, clean, healthy drinking water and sustaining our water, our water sources. And so, you know, agriculture uses 80% of our water. Wow. And so good agricultural practices lead to good water sources. <laughs> I mean, so, but part of what we've been looking at is like the impact of cover crops. And, you know, it's really interesting because, um, I had a farmer talk to us that he, the farm's been in the family for, I think it, he told us 150 years and there was flooding, but because he was doing cover crops, cover crops also absorbed the water differently. So he didn't lose his season, whereas his colleagues in other farms did. So just, just in case people don't know a cover crop. So a cover crop is what you grow in between your seasons of what you grow and is things like soybeans or, yeah. you know, something that, you know, may not be your primary market, but it, it holds the soil in place. It stops the runoff. Right. It sustains the water system, but it also is healthy and good for farmers. So the the farming component of your work is largely about the, sort of the issues of water. But I just, I feel like there has probably been more visibility around food insecurity in these times. And, um, and I wonder, so I definitely getting on the environment piece with the water, but I wonder in, uh, the Delta and the, and Northwest Arkansas sort of that, that this issue of food insecurity, I mean, it's all over to this morning's front page, right? Somebody sitting on a food bank line has never been food insecure in their lives. And are you, are you seeing that down in, 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 in that, area as well? And what's that looking like for your, you know, sort of for your grantees? How do you, how do you enable grantees to be able to, to really sort of really scale up? I mean, you're, you're seeing these small food banks and food, you know, food organizations that are all of a sudden they're just swelling with clients. 
Well, you're seeing it across the country. You know, I, I did a long call with the CEO of Feeding America and, and the numbers, I, I wish I could quote them to you. I don't have my notes in front of me, but her numbers were staggering. You know, there have been some really big headlines about some major gifts given to Feeding America. Yeah. And that money's already out, gone. Yeah. I mean, like it's already in the communities going to work. So, yeah. you know, when you look at what unemployment is, when you look at those who were dependent on, on food banks before this and add to that all of the people who haven't had a paycheck in that many weeks right now, you can't be surprised. And, and then you get heartened by the bus driver who used to pick up kids but now delivers food because he knows those kids are not um, getting that hot meal at school. Yeah, it's a um, it, it's a the world we live in where we are socially distant, and yet at the same time, there's just a there's a human family component to what's happening in the world that's actually um, gives you just a tremendous amount of hope. Um, I wonder, last question I wanted to ask you, Carol. Um, how do you think nonprofits will be different when we get to the other side? What do you th- what do you th- what do you think's going to be the pessimistic different? side of me says we will have far fewer. Unfortunately, that may, that, that may not I, be that may not be a pessimistic thing to say. No, it it is because I, I you know it is, <laughs> but the optimist in me thinks that those who make it through this will be stronger. I think we will see more mergers. I hope we will. Mm-hmm. I think we will see more collaboration because we're going to be forced to because dollars will be scarce because not only are our services more needed, therefore our budgets demands are bigger, but those who have the liquidity to support us are going to find themselves in short stock. You know, it's going to be many people who normally make that annual gift in December are going to find themselves not able to do it this year. Yep. And so, you know, I think that that's going to cause change, but I also think uh, you know, I hope that the outpouring of some of the more magnificent moments that I have seen through this 12 weeks will stay with us. Mm-hmm. That it's been fabulous as much as I, I kid around with my kids. I have two of my kids in their 20s back home with us for this period. And we're very independent adults in our house. And we might kill each other before the, the period is over. <laughs> That's very but independent. It, <laughs> but, it, but it is a gift. Okay, Mm -hmm. it is a gift to be together. It's a gift that we sit down to dinner together, that often we're cooking dinner together in ways that we didn't before. I think many families are experiencing that. I think many nonprofits are finding that when they dig deep, maybe that person who gave a huge gift can't give a huge gift, but is still giving something. And they're seeing the benefit of that something in their community right up in front of their face and, and being able to feel good about that. That's where the good in your heart is coming from right now. Um, And I hope, you know, with fingers crossed here that we retain some of that. And for nonprofit managers that, you know, I've been a CEO on the other side. I know how hard it is to raise a dollar. Yep. I think we have to remember that we're not only community servers, we're servers of those who work for us. And the best advice I can give to our CEOs right now is take care of your workforce. Mm -hmm. Remember that whatever you're going through, they're going through, that they feel as at risk as you do. And that we're in a position of a gift of leadership right now to lead and to help provide the supports that they need. And that's within our control to do right now. Mm -hmm. 
It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Um, I think I'm just going to leave it right there and just say that I, I, my fingers are crossed with you, Carol Stern, that, um, that this whole, um, uh, this culture of, um, where we've seen these moments of just tremendous care and generosity, um, that when we come out on the other side of this, that we are actually a more generous society, right? Um, and that that translates into a greater understanding of the role that 12.3 million people, by the way, which is the third largest American workforce after retail and food, right? That that generosity of spirit reminds, I, I long think that when you you tell people that we're the third largest workforce, 12.3 million people behind retail and food, they don't believe you. Right. That that I hope that it reminds people um, of just how powerful the nonprofit sector is and how vibrant and robust it has to be in order for us to work towards a truly civil society. So um, now critical we are to the future. You bet. Well, speaking of critical to the future, uh, thank you for the work that you're doing at the Walton Family Foundation and for all the good, thoughtful, strategic conversations that you're having um, it sounds like the Walton family really understands the responsibility that comes with philanthropy and it sounds like they're lucky to have you. Well, I'm lucky to have them and lucky to have you in my life too, Joan. Thanks so, th- so much. There you go. Carol Stern um, from the Walton Family Foundation. And to our uh, listeners today, um, thank you for joining us. And please, please, please stay strong and stay safe. Take care. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you found the conversation to be valuable. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe to it. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave us a review. Turns out that reviews really matter. They help people discover the podcast. (laughs) And if there's anything in this episode or any episode that really struck you as an aha moment, we'd love to know. Shoot us an email at podcast at joangary.com. And if you'd like to learn more about nonprofit leadership, head on over to my website at joangary.com. That's J-O-A-N-G-A-R-R-Y.com. It's full of advice and resources that you can put into action right away. And make sure to enter your email address so I can send you a surprise I think you'll find helpful. And if I haven't said it lately, thank you. Thank you so much for the important work you do every day to make this world a better place. I'll see you next time.